0: Hey Rachel, what's the deal with Warlock?
1: You mean aside from the thing where he is the best ever, Miles?
0: Well, I mean, what's his deal? He's a space robot, right? But also a virus? And a
1: mutant? Yeah, basically, you've got it covered.
0: And he's the same thing as the phalanx?
1: Uh, sort of. The phalanx is what happens when organic matter survives infection by the transmode virus.
0: Which is also Warlock.
1: Again, sort of. See, Warlock is part of a race called the Technarchs, and they feed on energy. They can consume it in pure form. We'll see Warlock plugging into wall outlets now and again, but in the wild, their default mode of eating is to infect an organic life form, alive or dead, with the transmode virus, turning it into techno-organic material from which they can then consume the energy directly.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Is this Cable's techno-organic virus? It sure is. Which is different from the one Apocalypse used to make Angel into Archangel.
1: No, same virus.
0: What about the one Strife tried to kill Xavier with during Executioner's song?
1: Oh, it's that one, too. And it's also the one that Selene used to resurrect Cypher during Necrotia.
0: But it's different from the Legacy Virus, right?
1: Well, unless you're on Earth 8545.
0: And Duglock from Excalibur is also Warlock?
1: Duglock is Warlock, semi so merged with the Phalanx with Doug Ramsey's memories, but, you yeah, know, close enough.
0: Wait, 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 does Warlock still have Doug's memories?
1: No, Doug has Doug's memories.
0: And Warlock's... God, what is Warlock up to these days, anyway?
1: Well, lately, mostly worrying about Doug. Ah,
0: so, same old, same old.
1: And fending off the advances of Ascension by Petal Danger Room. What?! I'm Rachel Ediden. And
0: I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 32nd episode of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera.
0: Oh, man, this is what we have been waiting for for so freaking long. I this is the one. I don't even know how many times we've we've mentioned this in anticipatory tones.
1: And then after this, we're just going to reference it nostalgically in every episode.
0: Right. It all this is just the peak. It's all going to be downhill from here. It's just going to get worse and worse.
1: Except that we haven't actually said what we're talking about this time. So if you haven't pieced it together, today is the day that we are finally going to get to our favorite new Mutants arc, the Demon Bear Saga.
0: Back in the day when Marvel didn't used to do very many trade paperbacks, it was one of the first ones that I remember seeing, certainly. And it's basically the first arc. I mean, I don't even know if you could call it an arc. It's essentially just three issues.
1: It's, it's a short arc, but it's an Okay.
0: Arc. Uh, not like today's, you know, exactly six issues kind of arcs. Yeah, it was when the artist Bill Sienkiewicz first came onto the book, replacing Sal Shema,
1: And everything changed.
0: The last time we did a New Mutants episode about Nova Roma and all that stuff, about how the book was really starting to find its voice to start to get the interaction between the characters. But this, I think, is where it really clicks, the synergy of writer and artist.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit. We've talked about Marvel style and what that means when you have that kind of synergy and collaboration, Um, most significantly in context of the Claremont Miller Wolverine miniseries, which we covered in episode 25.
0: What we'll see starting with this arc is that same kind of incredible synergy, but informed by an extremely different artist. Frank Miller's wonderful, Bill Sienkiewicz is wonderful, but they are like night and day compared to one another.
1: Bill Sienkiewicz at this point was coming out of a groundbreaking run on Moon Knight, and putting him on The New Mutants was a really ballsy move for a couple reasons. Moon Knight was kind of a fringe title in Marvel's lineup at this time. It wasn't really a traditional superhero book. I would even question classifying it as a superhero title, at least in that run. And at this point, this is in the early 80s, I believe X-Men was basically the center of the Marvel line. It was one of their biggest sellers. And while New Mutants was technically a peripheral book, it was still part of that big, central, very visible franchise.
0: Yeah, it's not like today, where it's all Avengers, Avengers, Avengers because of the movies. Back then, X-Men was the book that really sold. That was the book that Marvel was like, "All right, how can we make more money out of this? And of course, making New Mutants as a second title was a big part of that.
1: Putting Bill Sienkiewicz on this book, putting this artist who's working very, very far out of anything previously done in superhero comics, I mean, the closest analogy I can think of in terms of shaking up the status quo would be Neil Adams in maybe the early 70s, late 60s. This is just operating on a whole other scale.
0: I wonder if you could also bring it back even further to Jack Kirby's work on stuff like Fantastic Four, where things were just getting so much more psychedelic and strange, and he was messing with panel layouts and just stuff that had been done, but not to that iconic degree.
1: Even then, I would say both of those guys were still working in a fairly traditional mode. Putting Sienkiewicz on New Mutants and the work that he immediately did on it, I cannot emphasize enough. How much this changed, not only in the New Mutants and X-Men and not only in Marvel, but in the general landscape of what superhero comics could be and could look like. This was the book and the series and really the arc that tore that envelope wide open.
0: Oh, yeah. We've been talking all about Bill Um We should talk about his art and just what it's like.
1: Going back through and rereading these issues earlier this week, it's so hard to even know where to start. I mean, I, I have in my notes, maybe we can just do 45 minutes of reverent silence.
0: That would be the easiest episode ever.
1: We're going to be talking about art a lot this episode, and podcasts are obviously not a visual medium.
0: If you could only see what I'm wearing, listeners.
1: Or what he is not wearing.
0: In the words of Roberto da Costa, I hope you blush!
1: While the visual companions we publish on our blog concurrent with every episode are normally pretty supplemental, if you're in a position to do so, we would recommend looking at this one concurrent to the episode.
0: Bill Sunkavich, his style, it's crazy stylized and just really out there and almost scribbly in places, just splashing paint and angry lines all over the page. On the other hand, it's also very, very realistic when it comes to things like facial expressions and body language. It's this really weird pairing.
1: I mean, you can see influences in bits and pieces and obvious comparisons, and all of them fall short. So you can draw stylistic connections to, say, Ralph Stedman, that splattery, very expressionist. And Ralph Stedman was? In Quirk Gorgob- Ralph Sten is the guy who's best known for doing the covers to Hunter S. Thompson's books. You know, Sienkiewicz has cited Kirby as an influence, and you can really see that coming in, too. But honestly, nobody draws like Bill Sienkiewicz. Nobody. I've been editing comics for the better part of a decade, and I'm a critic, an arts journalist, and I have trouble describing what Bill Sienkiewicz does. I've seen him draw. It's just unreal. I mean, with most artists, you can, even the ones who are just amazing and virtuosic, you can look and you can sort of see process. And with Sienkiewicz, it's really the closest I'm ever going to come to describing something as magic.
0: I I just have this very vivid mental image of him just like, you know, looking at a person who just asked for a commission at a convention and getting this weird smile on his face and his head just unhinges like at the middle of his skull and all these like little deems and gnomes and warlocks and things just crawl out. And there's just this flurry of motion Tasmanian devil style over the page and then they crawl back in and then there's a drawing.
1: Well, the flurry of motion is right. I have I've mentioned my Cyclops Has a Good Day sketchbook, but the sketchbooks that I had before that and still have are are self-portraits. Thank you. The cat He's in those as well. The picture of him is recognizable and amazing, and it's, you know, marker and brush and ink and whiteout, and I think he did it in under about 30 seconds. Wow. It was just unreal to watch.
0: So basically, he's a mutant. Like, Forge is to technology, he is to drawings.
1: I don't know, because the thing is, I don't want to downplay skill. He's an extremely good classical draftsman, and he's someone who actually we have seen in X-Men before.
0: That's right. The first time the X-Men go against Dracula, we see him doing something much. Much closer to the, the house style of Marvel at the time, but also occasionally we get some panels where that kind of sketchy, evocative, surreal style really comes in.
1: And he is OK at that. But this is where we really start to see Bill Sienkiewicz. I hesitate to say unleashed because they're straight toasters, but <laughs> um, but it's where we really see him getting to actually run. And man, we are off the map.
0: Let's talk a little bit about where we're starting out as the Demon Bear Saga begins.
1: So the last couple arcs kind of cemented the core five members.
0: To remind everyone, those five members are not the same five members we started out with, because Karma, after the first sort of mini arc of New Mutants, went missing presumed dead, and Amara Aquila, uh, the mutant named Magma, she joined up during the no Roma arc.
1: Right, so we've got Sam Guthrie, Danielle Moonstar, Roberta DaCosta, Rain Sinclair, and Amara Aquila right now, and they're going to be the core of the New Mutants for a long time.
0: This arc is also where we see a lot more people jumping in. We've seen Ilyana Rasputin. Colossus's little sister, Magic, be involved with both the X Men and the New Mutants, and she's starting to become more and more tied to the New Mutants at this point.
1: Yeah, that's true. The last arc saw her finally sort of outed as a demon sorceress and a mutant. With those two kind of big secrets that she's been sitting on out of the way, she starts to really come much more into her own as a character in the Demon Bear saga in this arc.
0: Yeah, since Karma's died, we've seen Danielle and Sam emerge as kind of co leaders, not really officially, but taking on those roles. Very different styles between the two of them, which is actually something I'd like to kind to talk about.
1: Danny's the functional field leader of the team. And Sam is the emotional center. Like he's, he's the one whose leadership is mostly based on wanting to make sure everyone's okay and take care of people. And, Danny's the one who's like, okay, we've got to get shit done.
0: And oh, I get to actually work in my psychology degree. I never get to do this. Yes. Um, so uh, what I recall from like 15 years ago when I was learning about it in social psychology is that in social units, you tend to have two leaders. Now, they can be the same person, but they're not always. And in this case, I don't think they are. You can have basically the task leader and the social leader. And just like you were saying, Rachel, the task leader is the one that makes sure stuff gets done and everybody has you know their own role to ensure that that happens. And the social leader is really more the one... That keeps up morale, that keeps working on those social dynamics, that social tapestry to make it so that everybody really wants to be part of that unit and really feels like they belong. So sort of the glue that holds the pistons and gears together, which I guess if you glued gears together, they'd stop working. Likewise, pistons. You get the point. Okay, well, so my metaphor may be a little iffy, but it stands. I reject your metaphor. All right, well, my metaphor is rejected. It is not apt. God damn it.
1: So in early Claremont, those would respectively maybe Cyclops and Storm, like in the first.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, when Cyclops leave, Storm is forced to take on more of the task leader, role, and that's what leads into a lot of her personality changes as she becomes a a, a harsher person.
1: And then sort of Nightcrawler kind of steps into that social leader role.
0: Um, Yeah, I would say so. Absolutely.
1: And what's neat, actually, about that latter dynamic as well, but also about this one and them naturally falling into it, is that it's an inversion of the way those roles stereotypically tend to be gendered.
0: The dude who's like, hey, let's lead us into battle. And the woman who is more, let us listen to our hearts. And in the New Mutants, it's kind of the opposite.
1: Yeah, Sam Guthrie listens to his heart.
0: And is nigh invulnerable while
1: blasting. Because he's the best kid and everyone's big brother. So far, we've described this as being the school hijinks book of the X-Line. And this is going to be the arc that really changes that.
0: We'll still see the school hijinks aspect, but this is where New Mutants gets both weird and dark. It got a little weird and dark last time, and this is where it just goes off the freaking deep end and stays there for a good long time.
1: So let's jump in with New Mutants number 18, and specifically the first page of New Mutants number 18, because I think of this as the page that changed comics.
0: What it reminds me of, Walter Simonson's first issue of The Mighty Thor, which has the horse-faced alien Beta Ray Bill in Thor garb holding Mjolnir, smashing through the logo... It's sort of a, hey, things are going to change. You guys got to deal with it.
1: Let's talk about this page a little bit. This is Danielle Moonstar, and she is curled up under a blanket with a tiny bit of her face visible and one braid snaking out from under her pillow. And the blanket, which is this checkered blanket, is dissolving into the face of this growling bear. The number of comics artists specifically I've talked to who've talked about picking up this issue, thinking, oh, that looks cool, and then opening it to the first page, having the landscape of comics unfold in front of them on that first page is amazing. Like, I remember specifically talking about this at insane length with Rebecca Gay a few years ago.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like an 8th grade person in an English class reading Jack Kerouac for the first time. It's sort of a, wait, you can do that? kind of feeling.
1: Oh, except like with a million percent less misogyny.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's you know we're used to x-men issues and new arcs opening with it oh you know we're in the danger room we're hanging out here are our powers and with this it's just bam right there in your face what the hell is this all about there's a bear and this character who's terrified and those checks don't really follow the line of the fabric and it's wonderful
1: yeah what this immediately tells readers if you've been following the book or if you were coming in from really any other superhero comic this is going to be something really different you are in uncharted territory now
0: that being said, the book plot wise doesn't really go into that uncharted territory for a little bit.
1: Right. It goes into different uncharted territory. <laughs>
0: well, we we talked, I believe, in one of our last X-Men episodes, on Kenny X-Men episodes about Rachel Summers, who's the time-shifted alternate future daughter of Cyclops and Jean Gray. Yep, there we go. Or
1: why this podcast exists.
0: Uh, coming back to the present day. And she mentions that, you know, she stopped by the school first and got freaked out because Eliana was older. And that's actually where we see this. But not immediately. First, we see what we will come to realize is a flashback, but initially is one of those what-the-hell moments, like what Days of Future Past opens with.
1: This sequence bugs me. This is irrelevant to the story, and it's basically just Claremont going, Guys, 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 look, this is tied to the main X-Men book, this cohesive line. It's pointless. It's well drawn, but I just I don't want this here.
0: But at the same time, keep in mind, I mean, this is us uh many, many, many years after the fact looking at these books as individual arcs, as individual chunks. Now, people who were reading at the time, I know for me I always really appreciated when books did that. It was like, oh, hey, these are all tied together. This is the same world. Maybe it's a nice little knot, and maybe it doesn't really fit cohesively with the demon bear saga as a story.
1: Pacing-wise, it's shoehorned in. It's a red herring.
0: I don't know. I do still really like when Claremont just sort of throws us into an alternate timeline or something hypothetical like, you know, Mystique fighting robot X-Men without telling us what's up. I really also enjoy seeing the sequence of, in the future, Xavier getting killed, the X-Mansion blowing up with Sienkiewicz's art, and I think that is really something that he does better than, for instance, Romita, who did this in Uncanny X-Men.
1: Yeah, at the same time, though, when he does those opens, it's almost always something that's relevant, and here it's not at all. It's literally a hook for a story that's playing out in another book. It's not going to come up again in New Mutants. It's just gratuitous to me. It's a distraction. It's something that drives home, too, is, yes, Sienkiewicz's art is beautiful. But what's interesting about this, we drew the comparison to Miller and Claremont on Wolverine. And that very much came in fully formed. And the interesting thing about New Mutants 18 for me is we kind of get to see Claremont and Sienkiewicz feeling out their dynamic. This issue is awkward. They don't have that seamless fit that we're going to see later yet. I mean, there are times when it feels like the writing and the art are from two totally different comics.
0: For me, it feels like the beginning of a horror movie when we haven't yet got to the emotional core of the characters because they're still comfortable with what's going on. It's sort of a gentle lead in rather than just like throwing us face first into the unknown.
1: Yeah, once we get the gratuitous Rachel Summers cameo out of the way, this issue is all about anticipation. It's very obviously building up to something. And what it is building up to is, of course, the demon bear. So let's talk about demon bears.
0: First of all, I'd like to point out, let's talk about demon bears is a wonderful sentence.
1: When they separated, like, the boys and the girls in middle school science class. I don't know about you guys, but we definitely watched a movie called Let's Talk About Demon Bears. It was educational. We just
0: talked about sticky sheets. Yours is way better.
1: It was actually, it was just demon bears explaining about tampons.
0: (laughs) There's a marketing campaign no one's tried yet.
1: They'll pay attention, guys!
0: Right? Anyway, so we've heard the demon bear referenced before in New Mutants. Actually, very early on, it's something that Danny Moonstar has mentioned a number of times as as this spirit thing, this beast that was responsible for killing her parents. That's why she was living with her grandfather, Black Eagle, when uh, New Mutants' graphic novel came out and Xavier met her for the first time.
1: Everyone else thinks that she is exaggerating or she's wrong and it's a normal bear. Spoiler. She is 100% correct.
0: This bear is fucked up. Yeah,
1: this is not a normal bear.
0: She's been obsessing over this a little bit more and a little bit more as time has gone on and as she hasn't been distracted by whatever mission the New Mutants are on. In this issue, we see her in the danger room fighting bears
1: danger bears
0: (laughs) i really like this i like that she's learning to fight without using her power she wants to hone every part of her body and soul to use a claremontism for when this confrontation inevitably happens this confrontation that nobody else really believes is going to be a real thing
1: she's specifically in the danger room with iliana who we see a lot running the controls in the danger room who Basically calls out that Danny is, A, hiding something, and B, really obsessed with her, as far as anyone else knows, imaginary bear nemesis.
0: And I can understand Liana being pissed about this because she was forced very recently to essentially come out as a sorceress, to come out as somebody who is in this demon realm for ages and who does, like, dark magic. And then she sees Danny, you know, not revealing something that is presumably much smaller.
1: Well, and at the same time, Eliana was not involved in this. In the very first arc of New Mutants, Professor Xavier was was infected with a brute embryo and was basically hardcore gaslighting Danny and convincing the rest of the New Mutants that she was insane. And the demon bear was a big part of that. Now, the fact that they don't believe her and the fact that she's pretty paranoid about talking to them about it, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, given that history. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I I can't say I blame her, but I also can't blame Ilyana for being really angry at the same time.
1: We've seen, too, before she jumps in, the team fighting in the Danger Room, and I want to talk about that again briefly in context of Sienkiewicz's art, because... A lot of the Demon Bear saga and, you know, the, the lead in with Rachel Summers that we saw is him doing really atypical superhero stuff. But this is him doing a very classic issue opener. You know, He's doing the kids in the danger room. I think it's worth noting how hard he nails that, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, everything from traditional superheroics to, you know, later on, we'll see a bunch of people hanging out in a hospital waiting room to some gigantic, chaotic spirit of incomprehensible madness It all works, and I think what I really like about it is because Sienkiewicz's range is so wide, going from the very normal to the very abnormal, the very surreal, you get to compare all of those things against each other. The weird seems weirder, and the normal seems more normal. So from there we go to the Demon Bear, right?
1: No! We go to Space Robots.
0: Weren't you talking about X-Men as Mad Libs last episode?
1: Yeah, and you know, this kind of reads that way, but we go to the Space Robot, who as far as I'm concerned is the apex of Sienkiewicz's designer. We just get a sudden... Out of nowhere, shift to these two things,
0: and we're actually going to talk more about this later in the episode when this character, obviously Warlock, first shows right. up. Right? These are
1: these guys are Magus and Warlock. We don't know this yet, and they're just careening through space. And can we take a minute to talk about these page layouts?
0: Yes, we absolutely should, because, you know, the art obviously is amazing, but the things Sienkiewicz does with panels are just bizarre.
1: His approach to storytelling is narrative and dynamic, but it's also very, very design-oriented. You talk about comics pages and you think of them as sequences of panels, and one of the things that looking at the Demon Bear Saga in particular will really jar you into doing as a reader is also looking at pages as discrete entire entities in themselves as Mm -hmm. pieces of art of the layout as part of the storytelling and the framing and the way the way the panels move into and intersect with and interact with each other and the design and shape of it as part of the creation of the world and environment part of the pacing of the book. And that's one of the places I think where Sienkiewicz breaks the frame. The way he uses the physical space of pages and the way he interacts with the physical confines of the medium and stretches and warps and changes those are, I think, the places where he's kind of a revolutionary.
0: Yes. So what about bears now? Can we talk about bears? I want to talk about bears.
1: I think it's bear time.
0: Okay. Bear time is my favorite time.
1: So Danny goes out to hunt the demon bear alone.
0: She gets a bow and some arrows and puts on war paint and a jacket and heads out into the snow into this blizzard because she knows it's out there she's become more and more and more convinced and it's easy to to look at it as the reader or as any of the other characters in the book right now as yeah so she's just kind of lost touch with reality but in fact there it is in oh god one of the most amazing reveals i have ever seen
1: yeah she calls it out she summons it to show itself the splash page where we first see the demon bear it's just breathtaking
0: The sense of scale that the art manages to capture, this hulking, enormous creature. I mean, you know, you can have a big bad guy in a comic. You you do all the time. Like, let's look at, I don't know, Red Onslaught from Current Access. Do we have to? Only in terms of comparison. Can we just
1: never look at Red Onslaught in Current (laughs) Access?
0: But yeah, with Red Onslaught, obviously he's this like huge, huge, huge creature. But there's not that sense of overwhelming, overpowering mass that I think the Demon Bear manages to have.
1: The Demon Bear isn't just bigger than the characters. It swallows the space around it. It swallows the page. It swallows the structure. It swallows detail. You never see it in, in fine detail. You see its claws and you see its eyes and you see its teeth and as it, it's just this shaggy, hulking, you know, spreading protean thing.
0: Uh, I think you described it as being more an environment than a bear, more like a world than a bear.
1: It is, and it becomes that much more literally later. Confronted with this amazing page layout. (laughs) um, (laughs) Confronted with this, she fights it, and she apparently wins. Except, we see Rain Sinclair Wolfsbane, who's got a telepathic link with Danny, waking up panicked. And the rest of the New Mutants run outside, and they find her in the snow, horrifically mauled and nearly dead.
0: You know, that's a hell of a place to end a first issue of a new artist.
1: The next issue, issue 19, for obvious reasons, opens in the emergency room.
0: And one thing I really like about this and the next few issues is... In the little corner boxes, you know, like where you normally have the, the different heads of the different uh, main characters of the book, they're more deliberate. So, like, this time, for instance, it's a close-up of Danny's face. She's lying down on, on her back with her eyes closed, and there's an IV bag right next to her.
1: If the first issue was about anticipation, issue 19 of New Mutants is all about tension.
0: It's not a super fast action-oriented issue. I mean, in places it is. But overall, the entire time, while everything else is going on, we have Danny in the operating chamber with the surgeons attempting to save her life. And
1: she's yeah, she is almost dead. It's fairly obvious that if she survives, which is far from a given, yeah, you know, the bear has has effectively ended her life as she knew it at least.
0: So we have the new mutants just sitting there waiting outside surgery because obviously they can't help at all.
1: And meanwhile, we have another kind of classic suspense movie element building up outside, which is a blizzard thick enough that they can't leave the hospital. And they can't get in touch with the X-Men or Charles Xavier. So it's just them having to deal with this on their own.
0: And this is a very common New Mutants trope. You know, it's the kids who really wish they could have help from adults, but for whatever reason they can't. They're on their own and having to they're having to figure out what the best thing to do is without having nearly enough experience or information to easily do so. And
1: there are adults who are trying to help. I mean, I think the obvious direction to take this for a lot of comics would have been to have the adults be skeptical and be kind of hostile. One of the things I noticed in this issue is the adults here are all super concerned and they're super helpful, but they're also completely unequipped to deal with the real enemy.
0: Yeah, and aside from the surgeons, we have two main adults. We have Tom Corsi, who's a police officer who's there, and we have Sharon Friedlander, who's one of the nurses. And these are characters that I'm not going to say they're going to become central because they're not, but they are going to become recurring characters with a lot of interesting things going on with them.
1: And they're going to be kind of central MacGuffins in this arc. They realize that Danny was absolutely right about the demon bear and that there's a really good chance that it's going to come and try to kill her. And Rain shifts into wolf form and she's prowling around and Officer Corsi, Almost kills her because he sees a flash of what looks like a wild animal and he responds in the absolute responsible logical way, which is to draw his gun and and go after it and he sees that it's rain. She shifts back in time. It drives home again that the people who are normally in positions of authority and power just don't have the tools or frame of reference to handle what needs to be handled.
0: And another thing Rain does when she's in wolf form, you know, she has that telepathic link that you just talked about, Rachel. She tries to contact Danny. And as she does, Danny wakes up more and more out of anesthetic, which obviously is not a good plan because she's in such terrible shape. And so the surgeons are like, holy crap, we, we need to get her under more anesthetic. Hurry. Which, of course, comes with its own dangers. And Rain just feels super guilty at this point, but does confirm that, "Yep, demon bear.
1: The other thing, I don't know if Rain learns it at this time or a little later, that Danny tried to use her powers on the demon bear and pulled out the thing it was most afraid of, and it was Danny.
0: So then you start to wonder, well, what what the hell is going on with that? Why is that the case? I'm sure this information is important, but what does it mean?
1: And given that and given the fact that it hunted it down, they figure out that it's probably gonna come back and try to finish her off. Liana casts wards outside of the operating room she casts swords around the generators because the power has been going on and off and that's when the bear attacks
0: so it is in fact there in the hospital and it's just, i like how much it doesn't match its environment like you mentioned it's not really detail it's just this face and these claws and its mass is just difficult to pin down how big or small it is it
1: doesn't move the way physical things move it doesn't interact with space the way physical things interact with space and we almost never see detail on it we see teeth and claws but just these flashes of them and again that contributes so much to their rising sense of just tension and dread that's unfathomable.
0: And so the person most equipped in the New Mutants to deal with the weird and unfathomable is, of course, Ilyana. although she's draining herself more and more with every spell she casts. So she summons up her soul sword, which we've seen before. You know, it can cut through evil magical stuff, essentially.
1: And we should mention that because she's cast those wards, those are basically extensions of her Mm -hmm. and of her power and of her will, the same stuff that she draws on when she draws the soul sword, and so she's getting spread thinner and thinner.
0: Yeah, and when she gets hit by the demon bear. During this first fight, something new happens something that's never happened before, which is that this armor, this sort of almost flash of metal, these shards of silver just burst out where the bear would have cut the hell out of her and protect her for just a moment.
1: But they don't really protect her from what it does next which is to just yank the new mutants and the operating room straight out of reality and into Issue 20, Badlands.
0: It almost reminds me of an old-style RPG where, you know, the big villains confronting the party. Just as the fight starts, they get taken to the battle screen, which is an entirely different place, except in this case, it's an entirely different world.
1: Issue 20, for me, it's where everything clicks together. It's where the Demon Bear Saga hits its climax, not only narratively, but stylistically.
0: Just look at this freaking cover. I actually had to take a break while we were uh, writing to set the cover of this issue as as my Facebook cover photo, because I love it so much. This issue is all about this strange other world, this environment that's just made of pure incomprehensibility and chaos. I mean, theoretically, the narration tells us it's what the world, what America specifically would have been like if Europeans had never conquered and colonized so much of it. But really, it's just this metaphysical space that makes no sense and that just really drives home how far in over their heads the New Mutants are.
1: And I want to talk a little bit again visually about how this is established. Over the course of issues 18, 19, and 20, one of the things that happens, and I love it because it's so subtle, is that Sinkevich starts to bleed outside of the artwork. In the title spread of issue 20, He's bled into the credits box, he's doing the title, and he's he's writing the stuff out by hand. And it's this expanse, this weird expanse, with a tiny, almost heads-up display-style mini-map in the top left corner, labeled a view from 20,000 feet with a Cartesian grid, and the caption, "'Black areas represent areas of land consumed by the demon bear's shadow.'"
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, obviously, okay, it doesn't make any sense, because if this is America, we're not just going to get a perfect rectangle, but it doesn't need to make any sense. This is a place of pure symbolism.
1: Yeah, it's like the landscape and the environment and the feel of the book has come to swamp even the design elements.
0: Right, because when the entire visual world, you know, what you see around you exists largely to evoke an emotional response, then you as a reader, that's exactly what you're experiencing. You're right there with the kids in the black and yellow. Yeah,
1: this is disorienting, and it's disorienting in ways that I think, again, really contribute to immersion and really support the story. It's not just an artist going, look at the cool, stylish stuff I am. I cannot emphasize... How different this was from any comic I'd read. And I read this after reading a lot of the comics that had been influenced by it, reading a lot of, you know, 90s Vertigo and Sandman and the Invisibles. And, and this still shook and changed my sense of what comics could do, the kinds of the ways it could tell stories, the ways that the different pieces could work together to tell those stories. But what this told me as a reader, looking at this page, looking at that mini-map, looking at the lettering, looking at the weird little notes in the credits, you know, Jim Shooter, the editor who is much taller and coincidentally chief, (laughs) was that I was going into territory that I didn't have the tools to navigate. I was going in blind as a reader. It's not a reality. It's not a narrative form whose rules I still knew. That changes the story and it changes your relationship to the story in ways that make all the difference. And at this point... Everyone is out of their depth, not just the characters, but the readers, too.
0: Totally. We've talked about how we have the Demon Bear and we have the New Mutants in this other world, this other plane of existence, almost. But the Demon Bear has also brought Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, who just sort of happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, And it also has brought this kind of orb window. I don't know. How would you describe it?
1: I think it's the operating room just still within Ilyana's wards. This sphere around it, this little bubble of the real world that somehow pulled through the rip that the bear created.
0: Yeah. And the bear's goal, of course, is to get in there to kill Danny to finish her off effectively.
1: So we've got it bridging two different worlds right now. There's the operating room world, and they're drawn very differently. The Badlands, the demon bear's realm is all wide open spaces and bright colors. And just the impression that I get with the way it's colored in Clintus Ween is just knocking it out of the park. By the way, we talk about Sienkiewicz, but a lot of the strength in this issue particularly is the colors and the way they're used to emphasize the narrative, the difference between the two worlds and the Badlands are just unflinchingly bright. And the operating room in this bubble is claustrophobic and tight in, you know, very, very, very heavy line work, almost entirely monochromatic and dark reds. For the most part, the New Mutants are in the Badlands, except for Iliana, who's kind of straddling both worlds.
0: And honestly, this works very well for her as a character, because that's kind of her thing. You know, she spent half of her life in the real world as this innocent little girl, and half of it in this hell realm, becoming more and more corrupt. And if it was unclear whether or not she was officially a New Mutant before this arc, she sure as hell is at this this point.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit in context of the armor, because it's starting to spread and it's starting to become almost full armor now.
0: Yeah, every time she's going to get hurt by something, there's more and more. And it's not just like a little spark of metal, it's more actual armor with gauntlets and pauldrons and stuff like that.
1: And while there's more to it than this, and it's, it's going to be a more significant plot thing, what it reads as very much at this point in time is her kind of coming into her own. Again, she's been really hiding the aspect of herself that the armor reflects. You know, the armor is kind of the power and protection that comes with not having to hide that, that she can really tap into it, and she can tap into it instinctually in a way that maybe she wasn't before.
0: Right, which of course does have its darker implications that will be heavily explored in future plot lines. But for now, it's just kind of a very handy thing for her not to get shredded.
1: So they're fighting the Demon Bear. Again, the new mutants are way, way out of their depth. The Demon Bear has effectively turned Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander into sort of demon puppet things, which interestingly are colored and drawn very much in the same mode as the operating room, that very, very heavy line work. And there's not a lot they can do. I mean, these demons are vulnerable to fire, but they also know that these are innocent people and they have no idea where to even start with the demon bear. Ilyana's the only one who's got any experience with the Eldritch magical end of things. And while she's really proven herself, they don't entirely trust her yet.
0: And in fact, uh, they're really not working very cohesively as a team at all at this point. Magma, Amara, gets grappled by the demon bear and it just impales her, just like, you know, puts one of its giant claws through her torso.
1: Which is how it possesses people. It's how it turned Corsi and Friedlander into demons as well.
0: Yeah, and it turns her into a demon. And Eliana quickly realizes, well, I have this soul sword that cuts through dark magic and stabs her to effectively exorcise her. And not her. people.
1: Like, it's basically a depossession sword for all practical purposes. Yeah,
0: it, it just cuts magic y stuff. Sam, who is kind of in love with Amara at this point, just tackles Ilyana and damn near kills her. It's really only her soul armor that suddenly manifests that prevents her from being seriously injured. They're so discombobulated from all the stuff that's going on, all the stuff they've been through, that, you know, not the most experienced team in the world, but they're fighting terribly together.
1: One thing props to Amara in this, because she gets kind of short shrift for a while after Nova Roma. I sort of think of her as the forgotten new mutant. She is consistently, in this arc and in the previous couple, the character who says, Okay, look, yes, you guys have issues, but, you know, team, solidarity, come on.
0: And in fact, once they do start fighting effectively together, they are able to take out the demon bear. Ultimately, Ilyana just cuts it in half with her soul sword. She kills it.
1: I'm going to read some of the narration here. The bear dwarfs her to the point of insignificance, its demonic nature kin to the evil within her own soul. It is as ancient as the planet, a maleficence that has ever been, shall ever be, while Ileana, for all her dread power, is still very much a child. What hope has she to even match her foe, much less overcome it? Then, with a cry torn from the core of her being, soul sword radiating so much raw energy it turns night to day, she splits the monster's skull.
0: Oh, man, that is such Claremont narration, and I love it.
1: As they start to make a dent in the demon bears, they figure out that Amara's fire can harm it, and as they figure out that Ilyana's soul sword is what's needed to take it down, it gets weirder and weirder looking.
0: Yeah, like it almost turns into some hellish cartoon. I mean, its eyes are sort of these irregular red and white concentric circles and spirals, and its teeth are just these jagged lines in this black background.
1: And it bursts apart and resolves into... To humans.
0: As the new mutants suddenly reappear in the hospital, these humans quickly introduce themselves as Danny's parents.
1: Who apparently had been the demon bear, had been turned into it and subsumed by it. Props to them. They're really just chill and matter of fact about the whole situation.
0: They're like, well, we were a bear. Now we're not. Uh, we're concerned about our daughter. What can we do?
1: And Denny is in bad shape. She will survive, but she is completely paralyzed. Luckily, however, the new mutants know a cosplay wizard.
0: My favorite sewer wizard. This is, in fact, the Morlock Healer, who has a big cowl and beard and hand wraps. And I'm, I'm assuming he has a staff with a, a giant orb in it and some Ioon stones floating around his head and a raven familiar. I mean, those aren't on panel, but they're probably there.
1: And he's also obviously, you know, a mid-level spellcaster, at least, you know, up to cure moderate wounds.
0: Yeah, so he cures or heals, I should say, Danny. um, Or mostly does. She was going to be paralyzed for life, and he gets her to the point where she's going to heal and be normal eventually, if not immediately. Aurora thanks him. Aurora has shown up by this point because the blizzard has subsided a bit. And he says, thou art leader of the Morlocks, Windrider, as of the X-Men. My fealty and service are thine by right. Call when thou hast need. I shall ever answer.
1: Also, if thou hast seen my copy of the Monster Manual, I think I may have left it at the X-Mansion.
0: I love this guy. I kind of forgotten he existed before we started rereading everything for the podcast, but he's such a bizarre character. Like, okay, it's a bunch of deformed mutants in the sewer, and a wizard.
1: So in this game, I assume it's him, Peter Corbeau, Harvey, and Janet.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, what,
1: what's her name from Hydra?
0: We're making our own super shitty Michael Rossi Michael
1: Rossi really wants to play, but they won't let him. Exactly. Like, he's he's the guy who always just tries to roll up Driss Dordan, Exactly. It's
0: like, dude, that, that's been like, done. Nope,
1: nope. Come on, man. What the hell? <laughs> but anyway,
0: um, so the other weird thing that we should briefly address... Is that Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, having been now unpossessed since the demon bear is dead, are
1: now American Indians.
0: They were very Caucasian and now they're not forever, which I know it's really uncomfortable and weird. I I don't know if it's
1: racist. I don't even know where to start with this. Like, What do you do with this? It's really, really uncomfortable, as I think it should be. It's a thing like they go off and live in exile in Scotland, weirdly. Well, not not <laughs> yet.
0: I mean, first will be in America. But <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think this is one of those things where like Claremont was pulling an all nighter writing this arc and like it was six in the morning and he had to turn it in at six thirty. He's like, all right, I need another thing. Uh, I don't know. They turn it into Native Americans. Whatever. OK, here we go.
1: Yeah, I cannot fathom the reasoning behind this decision. And after the Nova Roma stuff, what we've said before is New Mutants is really great with diversity and race. But when it's not, it's really not. Oh, yeah. So that wraps up the Demon Bear saga. We're going to cover one other issue today. And it's one of my all-time favorite issues of New Mutants or any other comic. This is New Mutants' number 21 slumber party. And you talked about the corner squares on the other ones. This one, I Sienkiewicz is doing the price now, too. But this one features a new character who is, I think, kind of the signature Bill Sienkiewicz character who will join the team this issue. Also, maybe my favorite character from New Mutants, and that's Warlock.
0: Yes, so much love for Warlock. So much love for this weird, weird alien machine thing person.
1: It's also got my favorite cover. So, the New Mutants have been making friends with some kids from town. And this is the issue where they invite them all over for a sleepover, which leads into what what has become, whenever there's a kid team at the mansion, one of the classic storylines, which is, let's try to hide the dragon.
0: Uh, Well, and also let's try to hide the fact that we're all mutants at a school for mutants and basically superheroes.
1: It's all the girls inside and the neighborhood kids are a little suspicious. And there are a few who are are talking about, you know, how the place is haunted and they've they've heard about all of these weird things that go down at the Xavier school. To be fair, there
0: is an alien cairn in the backyard that occasionally summons demons, so they're not wrong. Yeah, so
1: it is actually legitimately haunted in addition to all of the mutant stuff that they're mistaking for haunting. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, while they are inside being adorable and awkward and partying, Sam and Roberto are outside. They see a proximity alarm triggered by something falling through the sky. Throughout the Demon Bear saga, we've cut away to this. We mentioned it in issue 18, but we saw it in issue 19 as well as it continued to approach Earth. This space robot, this techno-organic thing. That's fleeing from its parent.
0: Its parent who, while it's chasing it, literally rips a son in half to catch it.
1: Yeah, we talked about scale with the demon bear, but Magus is just inestimably large and powerful. And its fleeing offspring has just been barreling through space, and among other things, barreled straight through asteroid M.
0: Yeah, and so that's actually why in Uncanny X-Men around this time, we see Magneto in the ocean fighting a shark to be rescued by Lee Forrester, because he sort of fell from space, presumably.
1: Yeah, this thing crash-lands on the xavier grounds as things do
0: oh i also want to point out the star jammers see it and mainly i want to point that out because when the star jammers do see warlock rocketing by they're like well crap we don't have time to warn earth it's going to crash into it well that's not good but we also see carol danvers in her current binary form and the way and kevich draws her her hair is in like these giant sunray spikes that are seriously six feet long it's incredible she's
1: awesome she's glam as hell So meanwhile, everyone is really, really, really excited about, let's see, Tom Selleck, John Travolta, Sting, and Michael Jackson. And Rain is just sort of in the periphery kind of trying to decipher it.
0: Yeah. And there's just a little speech bubble, thought bubble. Sigh. It's great. And I would also like to point out that Rain does get a makeover that all the girls, like, they're like, hey, she's really shy. Makeover time. And so it's a werewolf makeover. And it's great.
1: We we talked about Sienkiewicz on normal stuff. And this makes me really wish that he'd drawn teen romance comics. Oh, God. Yeah. Because they would have been delightful. There's this great panel immediately pre-makeover of Eliana brandishing lipstick and Rain reacting. And Eliana has literally never looked more frightening and demonic than so in this sinister. moment. so sinister.
0: It's great. Yeah.
1: They get Rain all princessy and then Sam doesn't recognize her and gets kicked back out. There's a Rocky and Bullwinkle shout out. This issue is all over the place, but it's so fun. It's ridiculous. It's all over the place. It's sort of joyfully chaotic.
0: The chaos definitely increases when sort of the plot kicks in because, of course, it couldn't just be all fun and games because it's an X-Men-ish issue and therefore difficult if not terrible things must happen and so yeah this meteorite well not hatches exactly but this creature we've seen warlock comes out of it and he he's all tangled circuitry and messy lines and exaggerated facial expressions and anatomy he is bill synkevich at his most bill synkevichy uh you mentioned rachel that he's kind of the iconic synkevich character and abs of freaking lootly we'll get a lot of images of him on the as mentioned
1: you know we talked about the demon bear not really interacting with space like a normal physical thing and Man, is that true of Warlock?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, there's there's sort of a, I'm not going to say cat and mouse, but he's trying to figure out what to do. And part of why he's confused, he only knows his own sh- species. So he's seeing machinery as people and organic matter as just straight up food. So at one point he tries to talk to a refrigerator and is very impressed with how it keeps organic matter within itself so that it'll, it'll have it for later.
1: This is something that is a running theme with Warlock. And it's one of my favorite things about him that we see from the very start, which is that Warlock tries to make friends with everything.
0: Yes, inanimate objects or people once he realizes that organic things can be sentient as well.
1: A few issues from now, there's going to be a great sequence where he's really worried that if they leave the Blackbird on a mission, it's going to get lonely. Oh, yes. Yeah, Warlock is nice. You know, you see stories where there are aliens who are trying to communicate and they're, they're damaging things. And you almost always, always see this from the perspective of the humans working this out. And this is that story from the perspective of the alien. He's almost dead. He's fleeing from this parent who's trying to murder him. He's trying to find a power source. He really doesn't want to hurt anything. He really wants to just make friends with the appliances. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) That's a good motivation. But yeah, so they, they fight, you know, misunderstanding each other completely. And eventually, Danny and Sam both start to realize, you know, this thing isn't malicious. It's just confused. And they figure, well... It's not exactly plan A, but Doug Ramsey, Kitty Pride's friend, we know he's a mutant who's really good with languages. No,
1: he doesn't know this.
0: Exactly. So they pick him up and he's a little befuddled.
1: They literally just show up at his house in the middle of the night and they're like, yeah, so we're mutant superhero team. You're a mutant. We need you to come translate for an alien. And there's a great moment. Sam says, you know, you're upset. And... Doug responds, How would you feel if a supposed pal yanks you out of a sound sleep, informs you he's a mutant and you're a mutant, and flies you to his place to establish a meaningful dialogue with a potentially hostile alien?
0: Yay, I love Doug Ramsey.
1: The moments where someone actually, like, stands back and points out just how bloody, completely weird the X-Men's life and stories are, are among my favorites. Mm -hmm.
0: So, yeah, and in fact, he and Warlock are able to communicate. They establish sort of a mutual language using uh, the danger room controls, actually. And we find out that Warlock, yeah, that's the way his species works, is when they're born, they're not exactly fathers, but close enough, challenge them to a duel to the death, like, immediately. And Warlock said, screw this, and got out of there. And that's why he's here on Earth.
1: Warlock, we're going to learn eventually, is a mutant technarch. He doesn't have the instinct to kill his parent. He has he has compassion. And that's the ground under which the new mutants eventually convinced Professor Xavier to admit him to the school, which is their next step once they you know find mutual language is obviously to petition for enrollment.
0: And I do love when they first introduce the somewhat sheepish, shy warlock to Xavier. Warlock is just now learning to speak English.
1: And it's worth noting, we've seen his thoughts and his interiority, and they're much more sophisticated and much more fluid, but his his grasp of human language is limited and is still developing. We complain about phonetic accents and sort of cutesy speech patterns a lot, and I feel like Warlock's kind of the exception to a lot of those rules, because it works on him. It works really well.
0: Yeah, uh, he says to Xavier, honored is self your acquaintance to make, Professor My." Life is yours. Yeah, Warlock
1: has trouble with pronouns, and he never really quite gets past that.
0: And so, yeah, Xavier does indeed welcome Warlock onto the team. Certainly the strangest member of the New Mutants or the X-Men at this part by a pretty wide margin, but a really, really wonderful one.
1: You know, he stays the strangest member of the team for a very long time, I think. And the most delightful.
0: And so, yeah, those are the first four issues of Bilsenkevich's run, the Demon Bear Saga and Slumber Party, some of our favorite comics, really, in the entire X-Men universe. We talk about how, you know, you don't don't really need to read the stuff we talk about in the show, but we encourage you to read the Dark Phoenix Saga, the Brood Saga, and I am definitely adding this to that list.
1: Yeah, this is a comic that, honestly, even if you're not a superhero fan, even if you're not an X-Book fan, if you care about comics as a medium and their evolution as a medium... The Demon Bear Saga should be central canon. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode and a few times through that this really changed what superhero comics were and what they could be and inspired, honestly, a lot of the last couple generations of comics artists and especially superhero artists to continue that change in growth. I would say Sienkiewicz is far and away the most influential comics artist of the early 80s of his generation in terms of his impact on not only superheroes, but the medium as a whole.
0: In the meantime, though, we have some questions to answer. Let's dive into that. So I have to jump this crevice on Tumblr asks, Hey, Rachel and Miles, what's the deal with Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander? In the Demon Bear saga, both returned from white to Native American, and this was never addressed again, to my knowledge. Has Claremont ever stated the reason for this? It seems like something major, but it just sort of happened and the characters got on with their lives.
1: Yeah, this is never something that has been addressed sufficiently or satisfactorily. Uh, We touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, the characters did, in fact, stay American Indian, at least ethnically, for the rest of their lives. They decided it was probably simpler to just affiliate with the Xavier School than to try to explain this to their friends and neighbors. They spent a while with uh, Moira McTaggart on Muir Island. Later on, they were attacked by the Acolytes. Sharon died. Um, Tom went on to be teaching staff during Generation X. I think he taught PE.
0: They did get on with their lives, but not really in the way things were before, because, I mean, yeah, that definitely would be a strange thing to explain. And you're like, well, there was this this demon bear and the art was really good and it got confusing and a little uncomfortable and we don't know if it's racist or what.
1: I imagine that they had like a lot of cocktail party conversations that just ended with extended awkward silences <laughs> and everyone kind of scooting back a little bit. <laughs> totally. Because that's, you know, the Demon Bear saga is amazing but that particular detail was I, choices. Mm-hmm. All right. So Eric asks us via email, where are the new mutants now? It's my understanding that the book turned into X-Force but the title is not that anymore.
0: Uh, yeah, so actually, X-Force these days bears very little in common with older X-Force, even to begin with. The New Mutants have scattered in a number of directions, and I may be wrong on a couple of these, I may have missed a detail, but uh, here's what I know. So, Cannonball and Sunspot, it, they're the easiest, they're actually on the Avengers right now. Uh, Wolfsbane is now a deacon of a town, like Deacon the Religious figure, after the original deacon was killed during the Hell-on-Earth war at the end of the uh, previous run of X-Factor by Peter David. She was a member of uh, the team on that book. Mirai- It was most recently on the Fearless Defenders team uh, in her role as a Valkyrie.
1: Yeah, and she's actually specifically, I think, a Valkyrie of Hela right now.
0: Uh, Yes, yes, she's a Valkyrie of Hela rather than of Odin, like most of them are. Karma inherited her her secret half-sister's business, her her corporation, and she's now running it, so she's very, very rich in addition to having a robot leg. Magic is actually on Cyclops' X-Men team slash teaching staff, so she's a very central character at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's an uncanny X-Men.
0: Magma is, as always, the kind of the forgotten New Mutant. Um, she was most recently on the most recent team of New Mutants and was dating Mephisto, the Lord of Hell, for a little while. It was actually really charming. It was pretty great. Yeah, I actually really like that story. Um, she was seen during Avengers vs. X Men, but didn't really do anything too memorable. And
1: I want to mention that too—that there was a second series, or not a second, I think a third series with the name New Mutants, which was a few years ago that did get most of the original team back together. I'm not sure which volume it technically is. It ran for a few years. It got canceled a while ago, but it's a lot of fun. And while it never quite captures the feel of the original, it makes a very, very honorable try and I think is is one of the closer things that we've seen to it.
0: Mm -hmm. And then Cypher and Warlock, who joined the team in the issues we just described, they're actually on the current corporate-sponsored X-Factor team.
1: Being tragically underwritten.
0: Unfortunately so. Uh, So I believe that's just about all the time we have, except for some thank yous for our glorious Patreon supporters. Right,
1: yeah, we have been trying to work in thank yous to the folks who've been supporting us at levels of patronage. You get the option of a number of silly voices, which is why I think we should turn this over to supervillains and angry Claremontian narrators.
0: Todd Danger Johnson, you think you can stop the elemental fury that is Magneto, master of magnetism? A pitiful human like you would never even be able to touch my might. You shall perish, and then so shall all around you.
1: In the fickle landscape of podcasts, of changing allegiances, we belong to Rushgarat, body and soul. With all that has happened on this podcast, with all of the choices, all of the mistakes, never could we have anticipated... Reverend Scott Kelly of Our Lady of the Rainbow Congregation. And just as we completed the episode, as things seemed resolved from out of the past rose a new menace, Thomas Forsyth.
0: So there you have it. New mutants, demon bears, angry narrators talking to real-life people...
1: And I think that wraps it up. As always, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the host of the awesome welcome to that whole thing and full of Sith.
0: You can find new episodes every Sunday at our website, which is rachelandmiles.com, on iTunes and on Stitcher.
1: The website also has extra content, including visual companions to every episode, as well as written articles, art, and much, much more.
0: All of this is made possible, the podcast, all of our supplemental stuff, by our Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much. Uh, The ones we just thanked are but a few of the army that... Let us do what we do. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check out our website. Go to the link at the top.
1: Next time, we're going to be taking a break from the ongoings to look at two early X Men crossovers. We'll get our Phoenix on with the Teen Titans.
0: And if you think we're into minutiae now, wait till we get to the Micronauts.